Amen. Thanks, Natalie. So I'm in seminary, and uh, uh, friends of ours were getting married, and they asked me to stand up uh, for them, and so I was fine standing up and had to walk down and uh, with a bridesmaid. And the awkward part, in my estimation, is when you stand up, you can't sit with your family at the reception, right? You have to sit at the wedding table, and you're sitting next to someone that potentially you've never met. I had never met this gal, and, and so I'm like, okay, well, as an introvert, I'll do my best to make conversation and all this stuff. And so we're making conversation. Pretty soon it's clear that, that she's not a follower of Christ, and her, her life is not reflecting that of a Christian. So I was kind of taking that in. And so then she asked me about my life. And I thought, oh, well, I will kill this conversation really fast. <laughs> so I'm in seminary. I'm becoming a pastor and so forth and so on. And what I thought would be followed by silence, awkward silence, she said, oh, really? Have you read... The Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye. You know, it's, the, it's about uh, the book of Revelation. I'm pretty sure she added an S. The book of Revelations. And, you know, how it all ends. And, you know, I've read the, the first book, and it really makes you think. And I think that is how it's all going to end. And my first thought was, how awesome. And God bless Tim LaHaye and I think Jerry Jenkins that wrote that series that if this look at Revelation and end times would cause Christians to to really dig in deeper in their faith, awesome. And if it would cause non-Christians to turn their attention to the end of the world in Revelation, God bless them. That is awesome. And my second thought was, should I tell her that I have some real differences? (laughs) And I decided on a no to the second one, right? Just wanted to bless that encouragement and that strength. And, And the reason that I have real differences is because when I was in seminary, I was really wrestling with end time stuff, and and a lot of my uh, um, the the theologians that are reading were were spiritists, and they really took a lot more of the the symbolism of the Book of Revelation um, as uh, uh, as not reflecting historical events, and I was wrestling with that. Didn't believe the the millennial reign was a a, a literal reign or amillennialism, wrestling with that. But I'm also looking at what's called dispensationalism. And I'm going to try in this uh, series of looking at Revelation, really interact with dispensationalism. That's what the Left Behind series and Tim LaHaye was based on. And actually, most of American evangelicalism So you have uh, Calvary chapels, known for that, Assemblies of God, Baptist churches, a lot of non-denominational churches. They fall in this large camp called dispensationalism, which, which means that they understand the way that God has related to us are in different dispensations or ages. So some traditional uh, dispensationalists would see Uh, Old Testament to New Testament, and they see seven dispensations. And they lay dispensationalism over the Bible, and that affects profoundly how they understand the book of Revelation. Right? So if you've heard preaching on Revelation, and especially if you were in some of those churches or denominations, you probably heard it from a dispensational point of view. And I'm just going to interact really through our series with that. So in some ways, I agree with dispensationalists. In fact, in a very profound way, I do. That they see much of the book of Revelation all in the future. And I do as well. So in that way, there's a lot of agreement that I have. But there's some other key things that I see in a very different way, 
and I don't think it's huge. I don't think I, I don't want to tar and feather. And I, they're, uh, they're Christians, and, and we need to agree to disagree on some of those things. I even don't mind if you disagree and you fill in and take the chart that's in there and kind of make it your own. That, we, we can talk about that, all right? But I want to talk about one key difference, and that is the rapture. You guys familiar with the term the rapture? Yes? Yeah, okay, good. I need feedback, so you're with me. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul is talking about end times. He says, after that, we who are still alive and are left, he's talking about Jesus' second coming, will be caught up. Will be caught up. The Greek word is hyparzo. Together with him in the clouds, Jesus is returning. We meet the Lord in the air, all the Christians, and so we'll be with the Lord forever. All right? The Latin word for the Greek word that Paul uses here is rapio. And that's why people have come. So the rapture is actually not in the Bible. It's just a word that's connected to what Paul is talking about. Okay, so, so there is discussion. And to understand the rapture and the discussion surrounding that, you also have to understand the seven-year tribulation. We're going to unpack the seven-year tribulation a lot in the weeks coming forward, okay? But I just want to give you a glimpse of it. In my view as well, would share with the dispensationalists that to understand the book of Revelation is to really understand that in the future is a seven-year period of tribulation. Okay? Look at your neighbor and say, seven years. Seven years in the future. Now, you've heard language like pre-trib. Are you pre-trib? Are you mid-trib? Are you post-trib? I just recently heard, are you three-quarters trib? <laughs> All right? So what they're asking is, when do you believe the rapture happens? Do you believe that we meet Christ in the sky pre-seven-year tribulation? mid Tribulation, three-quarters tribulation, or post-tribulation. Is this making sense? You with me? All right, so uh, Kendra and I just watched Left Behind with Nicolas Cage. And the whole premise of that movie, it was better than I thought, right? I only fell asleep once. I think Kendra maybe twice, right? That's kind of how we gauge quality of movies, right? So it was, it was fine. But it was based on this whole idea that before the seven-year tribulation believe, uh, begins, big Christians are taken up with Christ. And the rest of humanity are left to live the seven-year tribulation, okay? So it's kind of a up-and-out theology, Rapture, pre-trib, we're taken up and we're out with Jesus in heaven as the rest of humanity wrestles through the seven-year tribulation. Maybe there was, this used to be years and years, 20, 25 years ago, you'd see on a regular basis bumper stickers that said, warning, in case this vehicle is unmanned, the tribulation has happened. <laughs> right? Bink, up, and out. Right? Bink, up and out, all right? So through my study, I have fallen. I am, you can write this down, I am a four and three-fifths tribulation. <laughs> no, I'm not. Don't write that down. I just made that up, all right? I'm poking fun, all right? Poking fun a little bit at the discussion, all right? I don't believe that we are taken out. I don't believe scripture supports that perspective of a rapture, of a pre-trib rapture, all right? I'm open. I wouldn't mind missing out on the tribulation, 
I think that would be awesome. You could convince me if you show in scripture, if you want to take the little map in your bulletin and put tribulation or uh, rapture where you think it is, great, just put a scripture on it to back it up. In fact, we're going to look at Revelation 4 and 5. Would you turn with me there? And if you've been reading a chapter a day for five weeks, you read 1 through 5. And some dispensationalists would argue that Revelation 4.1 is the moment that we are raptured. You see, they're going to see that this moment that Jesus breaks the seals, that the seven-year tribulation begins. So Revelation 4.1 reads this. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, speaking to John, and I will show you what must take place after this. That's the first scripture that I've heard dispensationalists argue that's the rapture. I don't see it. I just think this was an invitation to John to again enter into the heavenly realms and see the vision. If I'm going to be a pre-tribber, I need more than Revelation 4.1. Okay? Let's just hold that open there. All right? So, the other thing as we enter this, I want you to think about this moment in heaven. Many would feel that this moment in heaven is a future picture that John gets of what will happen when the seven-year tribulation begins. I would disagree. But let's read. Chapter 4, starting at verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me, and the voice I heard, uh, I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. Again, that phrase that, that John uses. He was in this, this beautiful probably more immense and intense presence of the Lord. And there before me was a throne in heaven. He's getting a picture of the throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Now remember, these are communicating, he's doing his best to see, John is seeing and then using and, and looking at these symbols and using language like these precious stones, the jasper, the, the ruby, the emerald. So think about the meaning of the symbol. So God's glory is like the brilliance of precious stones. John's limited in his language and understanding. But think, the, the glory of God was so incredible, so colorful, so amazing. He uses precious stones to communicate that brilliance. Um, verse 4. Surrounded the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white for purity and crowns of gold on their head. Many would view the 24 elders as reflecting all the redeemed throughout history. Both the 12 tribes of Israel, the Jews, and the Gentiles makes... 12 plus 12 is 24. The elders surrounding the throne representing the, all the redeemed there in the throne room of God. From the throne, 
came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Makes me think of Mount Sinai, the giving of the Ten Commandments, right? The lightning and thunder and the power of God, the strength of God, the authority of God. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. Imagine the throne, the precious jewels that reflect the glory. And right before the throne is these seven lampstands. These are the seven spirits of God. Again, reflecting from chapter 1, this throne room picture of the seven lampstands. Zechariah, in a throne room picture, also talks, uses the imagery of one lampstand with seven lights coming from it. I believe those seven lights represent the, the perfect and holistic ministry of the Holy Spirit into the world today. Not that there are seven spirits, but a sevenfold spirit. And he has these ministries that are shining to us today. Also in front of the throne, there was what looking like a sea of glass, clear as crystals, symbols of God's magnificent, symbols of God's purity and holiness and righteousness. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. So the four living creatures, it's a a little, I mean, this is kind of what adds to some of the mystery and spookiness, fearfulness of Revelation. But again, think of symbols that they represent. So I believe there are four living creatures, that there's somewhere in the creatures of the angelic realm. And what we're supposed to do is think about those symbols in which they represent. Then it becomes less spooky or mysterious and you recognize. So many would say these four uh, form of angelic beings, perhaps, they both reflect the glory of God as well as they, uh, they reflect attributes of God and they reflect ministry to the world. All right? So you've got, it, by the way, you can read Ezekiel 1, and there's a form, so there's a consistency in the throne room of God. And some would say the lion there reflects the majesty and the power of God. The, the ox re- reflects the faithfulness of God. Man reflects the intelligence of God. And the eagle represents the sovereignty of God. And they have eyes all over and wings because of their ministry. And some would say you could see that they're ministering to all creation. Mary Lynn Moose, I think she gave me some of the reflections which was helpful. Right? So there, you've got the wild animals, the, the part of wild creation. You've got the domesticated, that's the lion, the d- domesticated animals and the ox, all of humankind. And you've got the eagles, all the birds in the air, that they are both reflecting the attributes of God and have a ministry that they're watching and seeing and ministering to every aspect, the four corners of creation. Okay? Let's continue. It said, uh, uh, day and night, they never stop saying, did I skip some things? No, I got that. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. They're ascribing and affirming saying, yes, this is who God is, and we worship and adore you for this. For you created all things, the only creator of heaven and earth, and all that is within him. And by your will they were created and have their being. They worshiped in that sense, continuing again and again and again. As I reflected on this chapter, I felt like it was not only this incredible scene, but that this scene is an invitation to us. It's a twofold invitation that I'd like you to think with me for just a moment. It's an invitation to worship, and it's an invitation to ministry. The invitation to ministry is going to be a little bit more in chapter 5, which we're going to read. But would you think with me for a moment? This incredible scene of worship. And I thought of when Jesus was with the woman at the well and they were talking about worship and Jesus said, this is true worship. The Father is seeking people who get it, who will really worship. Let me read what Jesus says. He says, yet a time is coming and has now come. It's already arrived. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in the, in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in, the, in spirit and in truth. Revelation is showing us what true worship is and how we can participate in that true worship. When we are singing, when we are praying, when we are lifting our hearts to God, when we are in the Spirit, as John says, we're not just practicing. We're not just going through the rituals of faith. We're not just, well, someday I'll be in glory and I'm going to practice so I've got a good tenor going on here. No, that there is a reality, a spiritual reality that we're getting a picture of. That the, the glory in heaven with all the, 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 the four uh, creatures or angels, the, the 24 elders, the heavenly host, which we're going to see a little bit more, that our hearts and souls and spirits and voices actually are lifted into the reality of heaven that we are seeing. Some of us get this, and some of us don't. Some of us are still going through the motions, and some of us are really entering into the throne room of grace and praying. And, and once you get this reality, it will change your life forever. For example, if you come and bring a heavy burden and you're wrestling with something and you enter in and you really say, you know what, I want to be a true worshiper. I, I want to be the kind of worshiper that the Father is looking for and you really enter into the throne room and you really reflect on the glory of God and the heavenly host that is there. Do you know that your perspective of your heavy burden will change dramatically? I believe it will lighten. You'll see your burden from the perspective of one who is enthroned in heaven, who loves you and knows you and wants to minister to you and all that you carry in this moment. It's this beautiful experience of the presence of of the throne room of God in our midst. Amen?
Now, also, I believe this is an invitation to a life of ministry. Again, it's going to be a little bit more. When we read chapter 5, which I'm going to do in just a moment, you're going to see the 24 elders have harps and bowls. And you're going to see our prayers are in the incense that when we pray, some of you probably prayed this morning, and when you prayed, when Pastor Jedediah prayed together, his prayers were actually in the incense of the throne room of grace. Outside of the words of Jesus and his Lord's Prayer, chapter 5, what we're about to read, has been more incentive for me to pray than any other passage of Scripture. To see my prayers are actually in the throne room of God right now. That God is hearing them and responding to my prayers. Not always how I want him to respond, but he is responding. Boy, that's an incentive to pray and to worship. We're going to see that dynamic. Paul says it like this. 2 Corinthians 3.6, he says, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit, for the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. We're also going to see in chapter 5 that he is creating priests within the kingdom of God. Do you know who he desires to be priests in his kingdom? Just me and Jedediah. That's it. Huh? Huh? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh-uh. Look at your neighbor. Say, you would a man, or you would a woman, you would a priest. That's a big part of Revelation. We're gonna, I'm going to unpack that in just a, just a moment, okay? But there is an invitation to calling uh, and ministry, an invitation to worship and an invitation to ministry. All right, now we're going to read chapter 5, but before we read chapter 5, I've got this compelling question that I've wrestled with for a long time that affects how I understand the book of Revelation. In chapter 4, here's the question, you ready? In chapter 4, who... Or what is missing? Who or what is missing in chapter 4? What is? Jesus the Lamb. Now here's my problem with this picture. Many people see that Revelation 4, 5 is a future event when the tribulation begins. I don't think so. I think this is a picture of what's already happened. That Jesus died on the cross, we just celebrated it, resurrected in Easter, we haven't celebrated yet, we will, but on ascension, he ascended into heaven. And he then was able to break the seal. I think what John is getting a picture of is the reality of heaven when Jesus ascended to the, uh, to the throne room of grace. And he's getting a picture of what happened. Now this is going to affect how we understand Revelation. This is not a moment when tribulation begins. This is a moment when la the last days, is what the Bible calls it, the last days was begun. All right? Real quickly, um, in, in Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost. Many of you know that. The Spirit is poured out and... Um, and people from all around the known world, Jews were there, and they're asking the question, what is going on? Peter preaches the gospel for the first time, and then he quotes Joel. And listen to how he, he's explaining how the Spirit was poured out, and he's using Joel to help them understand Pentecost, the birth of the church, and he quotes and says, 
in the last days. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Was Peter talking about an event that was about, that was in the future? He was not. He was explaining Pentecost, what took place. He's saying this is a fulfillment of Joel and we are in the last days. We have been in the last days since Jesus ascended into heaven. We are still there and waiting for him. Now notice as we read chapter 5, there is going to be a shift in heaven, which is quite a statement. Notice the shift in heaven between 4 and 5. Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. John, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy. No one. Who are they going to find? Let's keep reading. Then one. Uh, I wept and wept. No one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. This is Jesus, of course, died on the cross. Standing at the center of the throne, mind you, He's not near the throne. He's not even next to the throne. Where is he? Someone else besides God is on the throne? I had a seminary professor who said he had a good friend who was a Jehovah's Witness. And they were dialoguing about scripture and is Jesus and the Trinity and so forth. And do you know what led his friend who was Jehovah Witness to Christ? To Christianity? Revelation 5. He saw Jesus not next to the throne, but at the center of the throne. And that makes all the difference in the world. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing where? At the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. All right, again, think about symbols. The horns represents strength and power and authority. The eyes represent all knowing. And his seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Wait a second. I thought the Holy Spirit was the seven lampstands. Let me read that again to double check if I'm reading that right. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Which is it? Is the lamp stands or is it the seven eyes of Jesus? 
Jerry, you know that one, don't you? The answer is yes. What a powerful Trinitarian view of the throne room of God. You've got God the Father at the center. You've got Jesus at the center of the throne and his eyes or the lampstands or yes, you've got the Holy Spirit right there. All are on the throne room. Can you imagine that moment? The, the throne room that is eternal of a God who is forever and ever, forever past and forever future. And then Jesus, the lamb unblemished that was slain, steps onto the throne, the eternal throne, and a shift in heaven happens. All right, I got so excited I lost my place. Listen to what he does. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he sat on, had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense. Can you imagine it? Four living creatures, the 24 elders. Jesus steps on, he takes the scroll. And then the harps, they were probably not huge harps, but they were holding and they're worshiping. That's music is part of their worship. And the golden bowls, there's this incense that's flowing before the throne room. Look at what those are, which are your prayers. The prayers of God's people are going before our Trinitarian God. And they sang a new song, <laughs> a new song before the eternal throne of God. Pretty amazing. A new song. And how, what does that new song say? You are worthy to take the scroll. Who's worthy to take the scroll? Jesus the Lamb, and he opens its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased from God, for God, persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels. Now John's view of the heavenly Realms is going to go, it's going to expand, it's going to get to see this incredible shift in heaven, this new song, but it's not just the four creatures and the twelve elders. Then I looked and heard a voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands. You can just imagine John going, no, that doesn't cover it enough. Thousands upon thousands. No, no, no. Uh, ten thousands times ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that was in them saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise, and honor, and glory, and power, forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down, and worshipped. What a scene. What a moment. When Jesus ascended into the heavenly realms. Friends, I believe that what the scroll is, is the story of the kingdom. That God is reclaiming the earth. If you look on the back side of your uh, timeline that we looked at first week is the story of the kingdom and you've got creation. It was the Garden of Eden. I don't know if we have that on the screens or not. We might not. Go to the next one, uh, Cindy. Yeah, you have creation there. That's the Garden of Eden. That was paradise. 
And then you had the fall. People messed it up. You messed it up. What was God going to do with the people in the fall? He could have said, you know what? These humans are terrible. Let's maybe go back to the dinosaurs. That was so much easier that he doesn't do that. Hallelujah. He said, the world is messed up, but I'm going to heal it. I'm going to restore it. Now, who's going to do that? Because everybody sins, right? Even if looking at Old Testament, Abraham, right? Did he have sin in his life? He did. Moses, did he have sin in his life? He did. David, did he have, King David, have sin in his life? Unfortunately, a lot of sin, right? Who's going to do this? Who's going to reclaim the earth? Who's going to pay the penalty of sin and the consequences? How we demolish this world, who's going to do it? You're getting used to like, there's just mainly one answer in this sermon. Yes? Jesus. So he sends Jesus to redeem the earth. And they celebrate this shift in heaven happens. And then I wanted you to see where revelation happens. Revelation happens after the redemption. And revelation is about the restoration of all things. We're going to have to go through some hard things to reclaim because the world is filled with sin and brokenness and war. And God wills that no man should be lost. So we're going to go through some hard things. And I really don't think that he's going to pull us out when it gets rough and rugged. He's going to say, boy, especially then, I want you to be my priests that turn the heart of people towards me. All right, real quickly, I want you to look at just a few phrases that were so powerful. The first phrase is this from Revelation 5, is every tribe and language. Adam and Eve were, were not only the parents of Jews, but there was one tribe and one People and we relate all of our lives to Adam and Eve. And when, when God's salvation plan was, was focused on Abraham, even in that moment, he wanted a covenant with Abraham that would extend to the whole earth. You can see Genesis 12. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be blessed. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. When Jesus was talking about end times, listen to his global view. Matthew 24, 14. All this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Friends, this gospel is a gospel for every nation, every tribe, every language. And we need to live it in that way. In the kingdom of God, there is no place of prejudice or racism or classism or ageism. The kingdom of God, the, the Christians should be, we the Christians should be the least racist. Racist and prejudicial people on the face of the earth. We should be reflecting heaven right now. We should be celebrating every tribe, every language. We should be anticipating people. We should be celebrating other cultures and languages and inviting them into this great, glorious story of the Lamb. Amen? Amen. All right. Second phrase is this. We read it, a kingdom and priests. I want you to be mindful of this. Revelation 1.6 talks about a kingdom of priests. But that's not the first place. Do you know the first place that a kingdom of priests is mentioned? Jesus. <laughs> Good. No, that's a, a different... Uh, <laughs> 
It's an exodus. It's way back in the Ten Commandments. And he says to the people now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possessions. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. What do priests do? They are the go-between between humankind and God. In the Old Testament, the Jews were meant to be the priests, the go-between, the, the channel of God's truth and blessing, providing forgiveness, comfort, wisdom. In the New Testament, you all are meant to be the kingdom of priests. Again, providing forgiveness, comfort, and wisdom to all people. You are meant to be the go-between or the channel of truth and blessing right now in this world. Would you take a moment and think about the non-believing friends or family or co-workers or close friends or strangers in the grocery store and on the soccer field and all over that place that you have a role to play, that God is saying, I'm inviting you to be my priests, especially to those who do not know me now. Revelation is also a story of the role that God is inviting you to play. I would argue in this life, during tribulation, and in the thousand-year reign to come, his return. And finally, that you will reign on the earth. And this is a concept that we need to talk about more and more. But when you think of reign, is it just Jedediah and I that get to reign on the earth? Well, thank you for the yes, but no. No, who reigns on the earth? The priests of the kingdom. Who's the priest of the kingdom? You all are. Look at your neighbor and say, you the priest. All right. This goes way back to Genesis. This was the divine mandate. He said, be fruitful and rule all the earth. This goes back to, to Genesis 1.28. Rule, he's speaking to Adam and Eve here, and humankind, to rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. He's saying, govern, steward, rule this world. I'm asking you to be priests. And you could say governors or rulers of the world. The, the book of Revelation is reaching back to the Old Testament, to Genesis, to Exodus. And all that was given up, all that was lost through our sin and rebellion as humankind, the book of Revelation is saying, I am going to write all of that. I'm going to restore. Paradise was created. Paradise was lost. Jesus came and paradise regained or restored. That's the story of Revelation. That is the unfolding. And yes, absolutely, it's about the Lamb. It's about Jesus Christ and the coming. And all of that is true. But it's also about you. It's about your life today. This new life that Christ offers us again and again and again. It's about the calling that we have as priests within his kingdom. Some of you are like, I can't be a priest. What? That's his desire for you. That's his plan and purpose for you to use you in significant and powerful ways as we cooperate with our Trinitarian God in the life of this world. 
Would you pray with me? So, Lord, just have this, this picture of a fullness. You're filling our hearts with your desire to use us in profound ways, to, to take our prayers that, that go before you in the throne room and then answer them, reveal them, and use them in the world, especially for those who do not know you, especially for those who are not anticipating your return, Jesus Christ, especially those who don't know that they will have to give a, an account of their life before you, Lord God. Would you fill our hearts with this ministry, Lord? Would you change our perspective? Would you get us? Would you help us not to be so self-centered, but be you-centered, Jesus? For you are on the center of the throne, and we worship you. Worthy is the Lamb, Jesus. Worthy are you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Can we stand up together? I'm going to give you the benediction. You can go and get your kids. You can uh, remain uh, for a time of worship. If you'd like to receive some prayer, our prayer team will be on the sides and, and be ministered. Uh, they'd love to minister to you. I didn't think I'd get through two chapters in, in the time, so I almost did it. I almost did it. All right. Close. I'm, I'm asking you for this series to give us a little bit, few extra moments in the service. It's important. Would you again this week, if you're reading along, Revelation 6 through 10, a day, a chapter a week, would you take Revelation 5 in the Spirit? Would you pray through Revelation 5? Would you pray scripture? Would you give honor to the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, and his Holy Spirit? Would you go as priests of the kingdom? Would you begin to see yourself in the view of revelation, would you begin to understand yourself as God sees you in his call on your life? Would you go as priests and governors of this incredible gospel? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. See you next week.